And what you'll see is their public equity component really is actually, you know, last last I saw was below 25%. And their, their, most of their allocation weighting was to private equity or private real estate. And both of those combined were well over 50% of their allocation. So again, they're, you hit the you describe it perfectly they're kind of leaving public equity and finding finding better investment in the private markets on this episode of early bird travis foreman portfolio manager of strategic private wealth at harborfront wealth management travis joins the podcast today to talk about where the ultra high net worth are investing including a look at the 2023 market and how you can make the same investments as ultra high net worth investors. If you're an investor looking to stay on top of the latest market trends, then you're listening to the right podcast. This is Early Bird, and I'm your host, Stephen Lerner. Before we get to today's discussion, let me tell you where you can save time and beat the market through Early Bird, a free daily email newsletter featuring commentary about the latest trends in stocks cryptocurrency, and equity crowdfunding. Early Bird is designed to help individual and non-professional investors stay on top of all of the critical investing trends. The newsletter is 100% free and is sent to your email box each weekday morning. Subscribe to Early Bird for free at www.earlybird.email. Once again, that's earlybird.email. And now, today's discussion. All right, Travis, welcome to the Early Bird Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much. Today, we're going to talk about where the ultra high net worth are investing. It's a question we get a lot from listeners of the podcast and from readers and subscribers to the newsletter. Uh, But before we get to that, Travis, um, let's tell the audience a little bit about your background. Um, In about 30 seconds, how would you describe your background? Uh, So my background is I'm the architect and portfolio manager of three private investment pools that specialize in private debt, private credit, and uh, private real estate, or sorry, private debt, uh, private real estate, and private equity. Uh Uh, And Uh basically how it all started, if you want to do that, I was back in 2016, you know, we um, saw the headwinds on public income. And we knew that public income, when you have the headwinds on public income with rising interest rates, we knew the headwinds that has uh, on performance. And so being a fiduciary for our clients, you know, a business owner and a partner of the firm, we had to get in front of that. And so what we did was we took a look at what the world's most prudent investors are doing. And I think it's topical for, for your comment today on ultra high net worth investing, because I think we can agree that the most prudent investors are, say, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, on the south of the line and then up in Canada, the Canadian pension plans are highly regarded as some of the best run uh, asset managers in the world. And when you start to unpack what they were doing back in the day, it's in line with the ultra high net worth community that they're largely leaving public equities and finding their solutions for, for the, to meet their future obligation with private investments and uh, ultra high net worth investment strategies. Yeah, good point you bring up there. You know, last year, obviously, we saw the stock market take a pretty um, big drop. In pu- so public equities is a terrible year. Um, so you're saying a lot of the, the ultra high net worth, they're outside of equi- public equities. They're looking at private real estate and, 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 and private equity in areas such as that, right? 
You got it. There's actually, uh, you could Google it. There's a, a club called the Tiger 21, which is kind of deemed to be a ultra high net worth investment community. I believe you have to be able to cash a $10 million check at any time in order to kind of be in it. And well, you can just Google it. They actually publish their allocation online. And what you'll see is their public equity component really is actually, you know, last last I saw was below 25%. And their, their, most of their allocation weighting was to private equity or private real estate. And both of those combined were well over 50% of their allocation. So again, they're, you hit the you describe it perfectly they're kind of leaving public equity and finding finding better investment yeah. in the private markets yeah you said the the club was what 10 million you needed to get in right i believe yeah yeah i'm about nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars short of that um but that's good to know um so um I guess if they're leaving the public equities going into the private markets, it must be because they see the real value there. Uh, last year, 2022, we all know how the public markets performed. How did the private markets perform last year in 2022? Okay, so it, I'll break it down because the asset classes that are typically favored in the private uh, are uh, real estate, credit, and equity, okay? And so I think we all know that the public public income or bond market had a, a really tough year. Depending on the type of yield you were chasing, you were kind of negative, you know, anywhere between say negative seven and negative 15. Um, and on the private credit side, not the public income, but the private credit side, typically these are asset backed loans or collateralized loans that where you're just kind of receiving yield. So you don't see the volatility that you're getting in prices on bonds. Um, so typically on a private mortgage type investment, you would have got anywhere between quite literally five to 8%. Um, and so for the income portion of that portfolio, a positive five to positive eight, you know, that's significant alpha over that minus seven to minus 14, the public markets were getting, and that's on the credit side, on the real estate side, similar events transpired, you know, the, uh, the pu public real estate investments had a tough time typically, you know, well into the double digit negatives. And on the private real estate side, you typically still saw a low double digit positives or a high single digit positives. So, um, it, it, so in a nutshell, basically those two asset classes had significant alpha over their public competitors over that same period of time. Got it. I, I'm curious, those areas and those asset classes that you bring up, uh, what impacted some of the larger macroeconomic uh, factors play in those areas, whether it's inflation, higher interest rates, the war in Europe. Did those um, challenges impact those asset classes in any way last year? They did. And I'm going to start with credit on the first time, on the first, and then I'll move on to the real estate second. Okay. Sure. So it, in the private credit side, these are typically very short duration loans, typically under a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so therefore you don't get price compression like you do in the public income market on really short duration loans. Uh, the other thing happened is they're, lot, they're floating rate loans. So you hit it on the head, there's inflation, there's no secret from that. And we're, you know, most North Americans are feeling underwater by their increased carrying costs or interest rates. Mm -hmm. So that had, um, and so what happens though, is these, these credit loans are floating rates. So they actually go up when interest rates go up. So it's kind of the opposite of what actually happens in public income. When interest rates go up, bonds typically have some price compression. When interest rates went up, the private credit actually goes up. So, so that was a good way, uh, when I say to inflation-proof a, a person's portfolio. 
On the real estate side of things, using the macroeconomic uh, uh, figure you're saying there, same thing. Increasing interest rates obviously means you're going to have, a, you know, in most cases, a reduction of operating income because of your mortgages, your interest rates are going to get higher. Um, and therefore, you saw the, the public real estate react negatively because of that. But what happened in the private market is quite the, actually the opposite. Most of these operators have like seven or eight year debt that's fixed on those ultra low interest rates that we saw two years ago, right? And so what's happened is rent goes up with inflation, of course, but their operating expense is actually fixed on that debt from the, uh, from the loans that were set previous to the interest rate hikes. So what happens is you've got revenue going up, you've got operating exp- uh, OPEX fixed, and so therefore net operating income it, you know, increases significantly. So the, the textbook says, if interest rates go up, sell public real estate because it's going to be bad. But quite the opposite actually happened. Net operating income went up in most cases. Uh, and so therefore, we saw decent returns on private real estate over the public. Nice. It, it, interesting to look back at last year and see how those private markets performed. Um, so we're here in the first quarter of 2023. Um, these private markets, how do you think they're going to perform in the uh, current year of 2023? Okay. So... The great thing about the private market right off the top is it has a reduced correlation to the public market. Okay. You know, we all want to, you know, we all want to high five each other sometimes or bury our hands heads in the sand other times with the public markets because of the volatility that comes with that. And that volatility comes a lot of the times just because you can sell or buy. Right. And we can make emotional decisions and run to the keyboard and hit sell or buy based on a tweet or a news headline or what have you. In the private markets, it's not quite that simple. You can't get your money back in a second. It typically takes, you know, upwards to 30, 60, or 90 days. And so, therefore, what I'd say there is it eliminates irrational investor behavior. It's not that we're all irrational. We're just emotional people, and we get charged up and make, and make decisions quickly. But you can't go hit sell in the private markets because your money doesn't come available for 30 or 60 days. So what an emotionally charged event that's triggering somebody to want to sell at a potentially a bad time, you know, would have passed by the time the money's available in the private markets. So it actually smooths out the ride because you're eliminating that sensationalism and the emotions that come with it. So right off the bat, it's a smoother ride for people. Secondly, I, you know, the higher interest rates on the credit side are favorable. Okay. Uh, it's going to continue to stay in that floating rate environment. If we see a couple more rate hikes, that's, that's good for the credit. Okay, at the end of the day, but of course, hopefully, we're all hoping that inflation is behind us, and even if it just stabilizes at this level or starts to tweet or tweet her off, and interest rate might come down, you know, towards the second half of the year, the credit's going to have a great year. Keep in mind that private credit is always, typically, in most cases, backstopped by real estate collateral, and that real estate collateral is typically, you know, loan to value of fifty percent. So therefore, for every $50 lent out, they have a dollar of collateral. So it's a very, very strong asset class. We expect a very stable environment there. On the private real estate side of things, I think you know the big wins are kind of behind us. It's going to be a more muted return. Uh, but as, as, as whatever recessionary environment plays through and interest rates to start to fall, say Q4 or Q1 2024, then that real estate will start to see an uplift there. It's more of a core holding. You know, you can't time it perfectly. You can't buy and sell it day to day. It's more of a, it's more of a long-term core holding both of these asset classes.
Well said. When we return, we'll hear from Travis about portfolio allocation and ways that average traders can invest just like ultra high net worth individuals. But first, let me tell you where you can become a more informed investor through Early Bird, a free daily email newsletter. Early Bird has commentary on the latest events and trends in stocks, cryptocurrency, and crowdfunding. With Early Bird's daily weekday email, investors can quickly stay on top of the trends and beat the market. Subscribe to Early Bird for free at www.earlybird.email. Once again, that's earlybird.email. And now, back to today's discussion. So, Travis, today we're talking about where the ultra-high net worth are investing, and you've brought up the private markets where most ultra-high net worth individuals tend to gravitate towards, especially in the last few years, especially the past year, given the state of equities, for sure. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to retail investors, individual investors out there who are not ultra-high net worth. Um, there are been a lot of platforms the past few years that have opened those uh private asset classes to retail investors, whether it be private real estate or equity crowdfunding that allows average investors to invest in startups. What do you think about these platforms out there that have sort of democratized, for, for lack of a better word, the, the private market investing world for retail traders? I think you've actually hit the nail on the head. We hear a lot about the democratization of private assets, which is, which is great. You know the 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 reduced liquidity um and typically more accredited type profiles higher net worth investors like you described kind of kept this asset class to to that community and they benefited from it for the reasons i described reduced correlation reduced volatility higher higher yields but and it's in in a lot of ways it's left the mainstream investors out so with the advances of technology more friendly regulation on it as there's more oversight into these areas you know, larger institutions are, are more willing to pick them up and make them more mainstream or retail friendly and, and give access to that mainstream client. I think it's perfect. You know, the, the, again, the high net worth community has benefited from this for decades. And the faster we can educate mainstream and 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 not only just the client, but the firms that are offering it to the client, the better off everybody's going to be because the secret's out. Private assets are, are you need to be allocating to for the portfolio construction. Absolutely. It's definitely for most investors out there, including main uh, Main Street investors, mainstream investors um, should be looking at alternatives, the private markets. Um, we, you know, you talked about a lot of the advantages, Travis, and as well as the disadvantages of, of maybe it, alternative investing. It's not as liquid as, as, as the public equities tend to be. Um, I know I'm not a financial advisor. I always tell listeners to the podcast, please speak to a financial advisor before uh, making any investment decision. Um, but generally speaking, when you're talking about average investors, what kind of portfolio allocation are we talking about for private markets? Are we talking about a high percentage or a much lower percentage? And that's a great question, Stephen, but it really comes down to... The old the old cues that we would normally take. So, what's the risk tolerance of that particular person, right. and what's the time horizon of this investor until they need need the money? So different, and so and the reason being is because of that illiquidity that comes with it. There, in a lot of ways, are deemed more 
risky of an asset class, even though they're not, just because of that liquidity. You know, the investor can't go get that money in an emergency situation, in, you know, or in an opportunistic situation overnight. They'll have to wait that, you know, that 30, 60 or 90 days. Um, so but long as that's communicated clearly with the investor, they have the appetite for risk and the and the tenure for liquidity, then you know, I have no problem trying to get a, a mainstream investor up to a truly institutional asset, you know, um, allocation. And when you get get those those allocations, typically will range anywhere from between say thirty upwards of say fifty percent or more in in private assets. Now, over fifty might not be right, but simply certainly thirty to fifty. And the reason why I say that, if you look at south of the border, Arizona uh, state retirement system has over 50% private assets and north of the border, Canada pension plan, the same. So clearly these institutions have longer time horizons, but if you diversify heavily and can build liquidity into your private portfolio, sure, 30 to 50% would work. God, it really depends on the person's risk tolerance. You brought up a great point there. So, uh, Travis, um, I, I wanted your advice. Let's say, you know, I'm an average retail investor and I want to invest just like the ultra high net worth individuals out there. I have two options. I could either A, win the lottery, become a billionaire and invest like them. Or B, I'm sure there are other options uh, for average investors to invest like the ultra high net worth in the private markets. What, what advice would you have for average investors who want to get started in that type of investing? So I think, you know, the real challenge is education, right? So, and it's not only, you got to go find an institution and advisors have, have specialty in, the, in this area. Mm -hmm. Our institution, Harborfront Wealth Management, definitely one of the leaders in private asset allocation in, in Canada. And then of course, finding a, an advisor at Harborfront, you know, close to you would definitely be accommodating to that investment wealth manager experience. Mm. Um, so, so no matter, and that would be in Canada or in the United States, just but definitely a firm that has, you know, more than one private asset approved on our product shelf. You know, you want to be able to diversify that counterparty risk. Okay. Lots of options in order in, in, through diversification. And just so you're going to have to find the right firm that has that experience and then, and then create a relationship with an advisor from there. Well, good advice. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for coming on the Early Bird podcast today, talking about where the ultra high net worth are investing and about everything we need to know about the private markets here in 2023. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, I just have one final question, and it's the most important question for today's discussion. Um, that question is, if you could see one movie again for the first time, what would it be and why? One movie again for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. One movie again for the first time. And does it have to be education-based or entertainment-based? Anything. Based? Any movie. I'm going to go with Christmas Vacation because it's the holidays and it's always fun to be around the family in the holidays. <laughs> Good choice. Thank you again to Travis Foreman for sharing your insights on investing. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's discussion. We'll be back next week for another episode of Early Bird. Have a great day.